Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. The end of the year, Tyler, the end of 2019. What a damn year. What a damn year. What a damn decade. What a decade. Uh, a chance to look back at the year, maybe look a little retrospective uh, since the beginning of Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and a chance to look forward a little bit, too. That's right. We uh, we started this little endeavor a little over a year ago in 2018, but 2019 was our first calendar year. And looking back, you know, we're, we're sitting here kind of wrap, wrapping it up and going through all the stuff, the mountain of content. Mountain. It's a mountain, ladies and gentlemen. It's the of Himalayas of podcasts. How many shows, content. Peter? We have done 254 podcasts since the inception of the Podcast Network in uh, September 2018. But in calendar year 2019, 219 podcast shows were released on the American Shoreline Podcast. So that's that's a, a proud mountain of content. And today we are going to uh, climb that mountain, take some scenic trails, mm -hmm. remember some of the beautiful vistas of uh, yeah. the year 2019. We're also going to look ahead, uh, talk about some of our favorite shows, so on and so forth. Uh, it's been a great year. But before we get into it, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. Yes. And right now we want to thank our, our key sponsor on Coastal News today in the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Coastal Transplants uh, from North Carolina, led by the great Steve Mercer. So if you are a local government, property owner, county, city, and are in the business of shoreline management, Coastal Transplants are the specialists in dune restoration. They run their own greenhouses. They install plants. They do the permitting. They're real pros, and they work from uh, North Carolina through Florida and all the way to Brownsville, Texas, so along the Gulf Coast in the southeast Atlantic shoreline. Coastal Transplants, Steve Mercer. Find them at coastaltransplants.com. Com. And thank you, Steve, for being a sponsor of Coastal News Today and ASPN. And we also want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors of this past year. Uh, Dune Doctors, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, right. TI Coastal Services, Coastal Engineering Consultants, CDM Smith, the DHI Group, the Palms Resort and Cafe on the Beach, LJA Engineering, and the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association. Thank you to all of those organizations and companies for sponsoring yeah. Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We definitely could not have done this year without you. No, no that was great. And we had so many people jump in and, and help support the network. And I think gained great benefits from being associated with this wonderful audience that we have on ASPN and the tens of thousands of readers that we have every month on Coastal News Today. So uh, pretty cool. So yeah, thanks to all of our 2019 sponsors. And uh, 2020 is looking great and hoping to be uh, be working with all of you again. That's right. Uh, quick plug, if you want to be a sponsor, just send an email to peter at coastalnewstoday.com or tyler at coastalnewstoday.com, and we would be happy to hook you up That's right. with a sweet sponsorship package so that you too can access this awesome audience. Yep. Um, well, Peter, you know, we were we were sitting back kind of thinking about this year that we've had, and boy, has it been an interesting year. And we started to just say, boy, we got to do a show about kind yeah. of breaking down some of the, the themes that we have seen, some of the cool stuff we've uh, gotten to cover. 
And uh, so this first little segment we want to do is called the ASPN treatment. Yeah. And uh, one particular, you know, I think we've we've attempted to kind of apply this theory to pretty much everything we've done. Yeah. But this this example of our coverage of the Maine lobster fishery and and frankly, just the coastline of Maine, yeah. um, the coastal region of Maine, yeah. which is a fishing coastline and, and lobster are extremely important. But yeah. our coverage of this issue has has really um, exemplifies the ASPN treatment kind of coming at yeah. it from all perspectives. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, look, not there's there, it's a small group of people up there in Maine. You know, it's not one of your most populated states, but what's happening up there is relevant to all of our listeners around the country. And it's part of what I think is important is to pay attention to trends and, and examples of issues on the shoreline because they're not limited. What's happening in Maine and the nature of the discussion happening in Maine is not limited to Maine. And so it's a really good encapsulation, as you say, of the complexity of coastal resource management issues and what I think is going to be uh, occurring around the American shoreline in different ways. But the main lobster issue, this is the situation, broadly speaking. And if you've been on ASPN Listener all year or you followed it on Coastal News today because we've covered it extensively in the news as well, uh, you know, they're having the bangingest uh, fisheries they've ever had. More than 100 million pounds of lobster being caught consistently every year for about the past seven or eight years. This is the peak of the fishery historically in terms of the quantity of lobster being caught. The fishery is worth almost $500 million. Get that, you guys, a half a billion dollar industry in the state of Maine. Um, and at the same time, the anxiety in the fishing community is palpable and powerful. And it has to do with a couple of major things going on. And it has to do with climate change and the shift of lobsters to a more northward uh, the migration of the population, the center of the uh, population moving northward into the into St. Lawrence uh, the, uh, and up into Canada and the right whale issue. That's right. And so, first of all, you know, we say that that term climate change. We're not throwing that around lightly here. It's the water temperature. Mm -hmm. uh, lobster, North American lobster. Uh, like a specific type of lobster. So actually, to kick off our coverage, we began with the science show. We did. And, uh, you know, we learned about lobster shell disease, which is kind of this emerging uh, affliction that affects lobsters, particularly in warmer waters. Yeah. And in waters where the... Uh, uh, Carbonic acid levels are different, I believe. If yeah, I'm, we, if I'm remembering correctly, a, it was a, a science show. There's a shine show, but I think the uh, yeah. I mean, when, when we say the ASPN treatment, that we've completely covered this issue. Uh, Joe Kunkel, Dr. Kunkel from uh, UMass Bedford, uh, scientist, a longtime lobster scientist up there. We did a couple of shows with him about the status of the fishery from the scientific perspective, and yeah, lobster shell disease. The, the loss of the broodstock, the big risk that's happening now uh, is these, the, the females that can, can reproduce from a certain age uh, are slowing down. They slow down in their molting, and what that means is the shells remain on their bodies longer. And if the shells are diseased with lobster shell disease, it, it re can reach a point where they're fatal. That's so right. The, and they're losing the breeding population. So the, the projections are right now that the, 
population of lobsters in the harvestable number is going to drop down to its historic number of about 50 million or 50 to 60 million pounds a year, which is a lot of lobster. But it, it's what was great about the series that we did here. And it, it starts with Joe Kunkel, Dr. Kunkel on the science. Um, Patrice McCarran, who's the president of the Maine Lobstermen's Association, a great interview with her about the perspective of the lobster community. Dr. Michael Lasaro from NOAA Fisheries, who's the head of the take reduction team. This is the group of people in the federal government that is trying to figure out how to prevent the loss of the North Atlantic right well. There are 400 of these things left. They're losing about 20 in a year. That includes Canada and the U.S., but vertical line entanglement is a big issue. There's a great show with Dr. Michael Lasaro from NOAA. Um, we looked at it from a historical perspective and an art perspective with David Abel. Remember, he's the, uh, the Boston Globe, I guess, was it the Boston Globe reporter and also the producer and, uh, and I guess, director of a doc- He's a filmmaker. Filmmaker. We met him at the International Ocean Film Festival, which we'll get to in a minute. But uh, correct, we, we have a journalist's perspective. Uh, we have a scientist perspective. We have a fish, well, an actual lobsterman's perspective. Yeah, Jerry Cushman, who's the captain of the Bug Catcher, which is the name of a boat up in Maine, a lobster boat. He was on the Changing Waters podcast, uh, hosted by Brad Warren, and uh, talking about the changes in the fishery from his perspective in the loss of the bait because of the reductions in herring. Look, I'm just saying, really in depth. And then we had Rob Morris on. And Rob Morris is with EdgeTech, if you remember, Tyler. This was the guy whose company is developing the, the lineless, ropeless ver- traps for lobstermen. And this is a, a compliance strategy uh, for the no NOAA regulations to reduce whale entanglement and whale death. But uh, what, what I guess I'm, what I'm saying is in 2019... We went super deep inside the, the Maine lobster industry in the Gulf of Maine and what's happening scientifically there and from a regulatory standpoint and a user group standpoint and the dislocation of this fishery uh, northward. Uh, and it's, I think, of my, of my favorite show of that series is really Patrice McCarran as the president of the Lobstermen's Association. Because she conveys something that I just really, it, it, it finally dawned on me, the, the level of anxiety that's going on up there, even though they are the wealthiest they've ever been in their fishery, in their history, and yet the anxiety level is just really high, and you have to see it as a result of the changing conditions that are happening out there. That's right. The shoreline in Maine, the social shoreline is changing. Yeah. Um, with the change in the fishery. Um, And one of the things that we uh, have sought to do from the get-go here is show the full tapestry of the coastal zone. And in Maine, the issue is not erosion, at least not predominantly. No. No. It is about the changing fishery. It is about their economy as it shifts from being, let's let's be Mm -hmm. real here, a working shoreline. Right a working waterfront shoreline to a vacation Airbnb shoreline. Yeah. And the uh, lobstermen who have been able to hold on so long, and by the way, it is a, it is, it's hard work being a lobsterman, but it's also a, a bitch in existence yeah. it went, when it's going well, um, as it is now. I mean, you're, they're making good money. Yeah. They are 
you know, you're living life out there on, you know, you're captain of your little boat. Yeah. You've got a nice house on yep. the water in Maine, which is a beautiful state. We've done a lot of Maine coverage. We love Maine on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Beautiful shoreline. But the people are what's fascinating here because they're feeling this uh, pressure, even though, as mm-hmm. you say, it is the, it's the high times. It's, yeah. they are booming. They're room times. But there is... The, the signs are clear that this fishery is changing and that uh, with the changes in the fishery, the economy will change. And that is sending waves of anxiety through yeah. uh, those communities. And so yeah. that's why I think that lobs- the Patrice McCarran show is so interesting. It's also why we are so interested in what's happening there with the fisheries, you know, and, and the complexity with the whales. Um and, and how are these stakeholder groups responding to these pressures? Do they, do they choose to adapt and, let's just say, roll with it? Yeah. Or do they choose to armor and hold their ground? Right. How do these groups m- mentally respond? That's what's so interesting about it, I think, for us. It is, and I think uh, it, 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 it encapsulates a lot of the issues on the shoreline. It's the, it's the changes in the physical location of the fishery that influences the economy. It influences the character of the towns, as you're saying, the transformations of communities along the shorelines from uh, increasingly more tourist-oriented coastal economy from a working shoreline, I, the, the main fishery is not going to die out completely, but it is shifting northward. The issues between the main lobstermen and the Canadian lobstermen, which was the subject of lobster wars, and then the real focus and, and kind of, man, I think uh, the focus of the lobster community on the NOAA regulators when it comes to the whales. And it's interesting to me, that is the identified sort of uh, enemy, I guess you could say, or so, an area of concern, even though... The real threat to the fishery and what's happening isn't the, a federal actor. It is not NOAA. It is not the. It's not the regulation of the traps. It is a certainly a meaningful factor, but what's happening here is the the environment is changing. Um, the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than any other coastal bay in America. It's affected the northern shrimp who you know, and the clam populations and, and the commercial fishery. Uh, and then you throw in the fact that in the uh, trade wars between the U.S. and China, uh, Maine lobster cannot be shipped, has been t- tariffed by China, and the, uh, the export of lobster to China is now centered in Nova Scotia and its Canadian lobstermen who are selling to China and not U.S. lobstermen. So anyway, I think it, it, I'm glad we started with the Maine lobster issue and the ASPN treatment. And I think it's because it, it's something I'm proud of, that we really take a hard look at a very complex issue and look at it. We looked at it all year uh, from a lot of different perspectives. And I'd learned a boatload, <laughs> a trap load <laughs> about Maine lobster that I didn't know before. And it had to do with all these great people we had on the show. Definitely. And it just shows you how uh, the only way to understand, let's say you're a whale, let's say you're coming at this from the perspective uh, of a whale activist and you want to see these whales survive. Yeah. Um, The only way that, uh, of course, you're going to, that, that this hypothetical person will come at it from a perspective where they privilege the 
the survival of the whales, and I, I don't have anything against that. But if they do not understand the economic pressures, the fishery mm-hmm. uh, issues that are happening up there, uh, lobster shell disease, and w- what's brewing in terms of the water temperatures, the changes. Right. If they don't under take take this on from a uh, landscape scale, global yeah. scale, yeah. big picture perspective, at least at some point, uh, I think they they run into the problem of just not understanding how what's this, driving what's it. driving it and and how yeah. Um, how this thing will actually shape up. And so right. this is what we're trying... When we say insight and intelligence for thriving shorelines, in this particular case, it's not... It's a good example. It's not uh, an erosion situation no. or uh, having to do a beach renourishment or a BUDM type of deal. That's not, that's not what this is. This is about um, in order to in any way tackle... The, the to save the whales, to save that fishery, to save these communities, there will need to be a common discussion about how all these things are interconnected. Right. And, and that's they, what it showed. They're 100% connected. And it's just interesting to me that, that the change in water temperature and climate change has, it has been what's physically resulted in the explosion of lobster availability. The sweet spot there in temperature-wise is going to end turn detrimental. That's what the science is showing. That's what Kunkel talks about, is that will decline. But we're in this period where you've got massive increases in lobsters, which means massive increases in traps and vertical lines, which is why the whales are connected. I mean, this is a climate change story. It's a sociological story. It's a biological and economic story. And what's really, yeah, it's it, it's, it's a, your classic American shoreline story. It is it multifaceted trade offs, everything really super cool. Um, one of my favorite parts of the year was Absolutely. the main cover. Total highlight. Uh, yeah, really looking forward to uh, packaging some of that together for our best of 2019 stuff, which we'll get to uh, more later. But Peter, we also wanted to talk about on this show. Uh, some of some of the live events that we've had the opportunity to cover. And so, you know, on when we're talking about the ASPN uh, treatment, yeah. we're talking about all these perspectives. We are we're doing this in an attempt to tell the story of the American shoreline, yeah. provide insight and intelligence. And one of the ways that the, in a in a similar way, we need to go out and find the stories where they are and. We have learned and, and been very fortunate uh, in being able to go to several live events and see the inspiration, the passion, uh, the, the research and just life's work that yeah. gets put on display at these places. And we get to talk to the people about it and learn what they're smart, so smart about. And uh, this, is, this is a whole other silo, I guess you could say, of ASPN yeah. coverage, but I think it's really important. I do too, and, and uh, I hope that I hope our listeners uh, appreciate it as much as we do in doing it because it's it's really uh, a rewarding thing to do, which is to go to the coastal professional uh, community when they're meeting in their uh, in in their annual meetings and festivals and things, and and be there and attend, and uh, it gives us access to incredible 
guests, lots of smart people assembled in one place. We set the studio up. So, I mean, through the year, Tyler, look at this list of places. We did the International Ocean Film Festival in San Francisco, which was, uh, I think, was that in February or March? Yeah. Man, that was a, a great week in San Francisco. And, and it was because we got to look at coastal issues from the perspective of, of artists, uh, from filmmakers. And they're talking about plastics in the ocean and climate change and shoreline erosion and real estate and fisheries. But they're, they're artists. These are not, uh, you know, coastal professionals. It was an interesting perspective that brought a lot of color and depth and texture to the understanding of the issues. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, and we'll be going back in 2020 as well to the International Ocean Film Festival and talking to filmmakers again about coastal stuff. So that was a cool one. Absolutely, it was. And, you know, just on that, on IOFF, uh, so often, you know, behind any film about anything having to do with the ocean, the marine environment, the coastal environment, are your scientists, are your key stakeholders. Yeah. Uh, whether it was Lobster Wars we just talked about, yeah. uh, David Abel. Um, so this was also just a great opportunity for us to connect with this broader community of storytellers. Yeah. And we are ourselves trying to do that. We're doing it in a very different way. Yeah. But um, I found it to be hugely inspirational. Yeah. And thanks for, to Leslie Ewing, who's the, the host of uh, the Shore Words podcast on ASPN, who got us connected with the International Ocean Film Festival community. Uh, and like I say, we, we're into talking to them about coming back. They, Let us stay at her house. Yes, yeah, she, she was fantastic. And, they, and IOFF really is looking forward to us being back, and we are looking forward to being back. So, And the second, I think that in EarthX Correct. In, in Dallas, yes. which was a week-long mega festival, which was put, is put on by Trammell Crow Jr., who is a, a, you know, I don't know, billionaire developer. His father, Trammell Crow, major, major real estate development person. He is a conservative, and this conference is dedicated to bringing the environmental perspective into, I think, the Republican Party. It, it's well, an amazing... Well, I mean, is, yeah. that, is that too... No, I... Is, is that right? I'm going to go with it. I'll, I will say that for uh, our EarthX organizers who listen to this show, uh, that is not... You know, this is just a... This is a come one, come all. Everyone's welcome. It's a nonpartisan, non-ideologically tied... Earth Day, it started off as an Earth Day celebration, and now it's turned into like a, there's a whole film festival component. But I will say, yeah, what makes this super unique is that they're not kidding when they say all are welcome and all come. Right. And what's so impressive is to see Lindsey Graham at an environmental conference yeah. and the United States military. Yeah. And what's, Former, it was yeah. just fascinating for us to be able to... Um, see the difference in conversation, the way people talk, use words differently. You know, for example, the, you know, the, the, client, the term climate change might not be used yet, but boy, we're going to be talking about sea level rise. We're definitely talking about adaptability. We're definitely talking about new energy. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're seeing an interest across the board, certainly on, I, th I think it's fair to say, the conservatives that we were able to talk with there yeah are excited about the opportunities associated with yeah. combating climate change. It's, uh, and they're, know, they're interested in it. I mean, go back. And this is, I invite you guys, uh, listeners, to go back and dip into the EarthX coverage. It's at Fair Park in Dallas. This is the location of the State Fair of Texas, first of all. So it's a massive 150,000 people attend EarthX. It's about a month long with the film festival, the exhibits, 
the speaker quality, the people that are there from all across the political spectrum. We did some incredible interviews with people from all around the world, actually. Um, and one of my favorite shows from that event was uh, Michael Hescox, who is the evangelical uh, reverend, the reverend Michael Hescox from uh, Evangelicals, uh, Environmental Evangelical Association, talking about climate change from a biblical perspective and the obligation of the human community to protect God's creation. I mean, it was a really interesting perspective, very uh just fascinating. I loved that show. There was just so many great shows that came out of EarthX. So, you know, one of the highlights of that event coverage. It That's was super right. good. And uh, Peter, when I was in Ukraine, one of my interesting trips of 2019, you were <laughs> the one-man band covering the Florida Shore and Beach yeah. uh, Preservation Association's meeting in Hutchinson Island, Florida. Yeah. And that was a really cool meeting. FSBPA was another great conference. And there's there's a sequence of shows that we did out of FSBPA. One of, uh, one of my favorites is uh, from, uh, let's see, his name is R. Harvey Sasso. He's the president of Coastal International Consultants. And uh, talking about the integration of climate change into engineering design. He's the president of an engineering company. And uh, we were discussing how has the climate change uh, issue been factored into engineering design? Is it prominent? What is it doing? And he is he, he says, I cannot do anything now without it now. And sea level rise is such a key consideration in engineering design. But it's a fascinating discussion to, to get down to the granular level and see uh, what's happening inside the engineering profession when it comes to this issue. But yeah, FSBPA, Hutchison Island, that the, the commissioner from Martin County, on on local government shoreline management, uh, it was also another great the, show. The science on blue green algae, I thought was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a great show. Uh, the blue green algae shows were really also super good on on harmful algal blooms. That's right. Um, yeah, there was a ton of great content that came out of, of these events, and that was a good one. And, you know, our OG uh, media partnership with the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, yeah. the national organization in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Good, good trip. Year. Good, good trip. Uh, we always love ASBPA. You all know that uh, our partnership with Derek Brockbank and uh, the Capital Beach podcast and ASBPA yep. goes back to when we started. Yep. Uh, but it was a, another great conference this year. Uh, it's always just so interesting to see what's going on. We had on uh, Spencer Rogers, yep. uh, who won the, was well, not person of the year. I think but, it was President's <laughs> Award for President's uh, award, contributions sure. to uh, we had some Spencer great Rogers from North, yeah, yeah, North Carolina. Great stuff. I, I thought the I thought the vendor go around the vendor extravaganza. That's right. We met a lot of companies doing interesting uh, products and services on the shoreline. Uh, was really good. But there's it's just another example of why it's important to attend and to go. Uh, I thought Coastal States Organization uh, down in South Padre Island, their annual meeting was super good. Uh, coastal professionals from all over the United States, uh, the coastal program managers from all the coastal states and, and American Samoa. And uh, we had a chance to talk to a variety of coastal managers from the Pacific Northwest. We did Oregon and Washington. That's right. We talked to folks in American Samoa. Uh, we talked to Shep Smith, who's the admir the rear admiral of the NOAA Navy, uh, as you recall. He was amazing. Well, he yeah, he runs their uh, mapping. He runs their... Their mapping uh, services. Yeah, I think the digital coast yes. products. But uh, it, it was it was a great 
organization, Coastal States organization, another national uh, group of thought leaders on the shoreline mm-hmm. and in coastal management, um, from the feds down to state managers. And we we know who our audience is. We know who our community is. And you guys are a huge part of it. And so we found it really important to share what's going on down there. It was convenient that it was down in Texas. And uh, yeah. we got our lodging there at the Palms Resort and Cafe on the Beach. That's uh, right. So thank you uh, to all involved for that. Uh, let's see, Peter. We, we rounded off this year's uh, live event coverage in Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. Atlantic Intercoastal Waterways Association, a 20th annual meeting in Savannah. And uh, look, I mean, it's another obscure part of the American shoreline. If you're from a different part of, of the coast, you might think, well, I don't know, what's the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway and why should I give a damn about that? It's easy to sort of overlook something. It doesn't sound particularly interesting because it's a waterway, but it is an economic backbone of the eastern seaboard. It's critical to the commercial economy and the recreational community. It has deep roots in the history of the country. Uh, so spending a couple of days diving deep into the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway uh, was really great. And I think that another example where the combination of professionals that are there is unique. Uh, one of my favorite shows out of that event was our uh, discussion about Seven Mile Island, uh, which is uh, which was Dr. Lenore Tedesco from the Wetlands Institute and Monica Chastain from the Corps of Engineers Philadelphia District talking about this partnership of dredge material management for shoreline uh, recovery, wetland health, and sea level rise adaptation. And you think, wow, that's that comes up in the waterway management. Yeah, it does. And uh, it was a great discussion. What was interesting to me, and, and I continue to be struck by this, the number of women professionals in this industry is growing, and they're in key positions. And this was another example of that, and I thought it was really a good good discussion on the merits. Absolutely very cool, that show. No doubt about it. And Savannah was great, and you know, a big thank you to the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association for having us out. It, as you said, it was their 20th annual meeting. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to share the work that they have been doing with America. So they had us come out and uh, cover it. And I'll tell you, yeah, you're right. It is a waterway. It's easy to gloss over that. But here's what I learned um, that's fitting for the end of the year is, you know, it was tw- it's their 20th meeting. So in two decades, they have, through organizing, uh, organizing the stakeholders, which are broad, ranging from major commercial and industrial uses, the military, mm-hmm. all the way through to sailboat users who, who use this thing. Right. They managed to coordinate this thing and create a pan eastern seaboard stakeholder organization yeah. that can effectively go and lobby to have this thing maintained. Yeah. And, uh, in the next 20 years, we're going to see this waterway be used for all sorts of good stuff. Not only the marsh restoration, as you just mentioned, in Seven Mile Island, which is really great for carbon sequestration, ladies and yeah, gentlemen. Up there in New but Jersey. also, uh, it, this is a really efficient way to transport goods up and down the eastern seaboard. Did you know Savannah is the second busiest container port in America? Yeah. 
I sure didn't. I didn't know that. And you you think that this waterway is a great what what's happening in transportation is that machine learning the, in the next decade we will see the coordination, the automation, the ability to apply all this data that we are collecting in strategic ways and the use for this waterway in the future is going to be uh, super important as for from a simply from an environmental perspective. You might not have thought that when yeah. when you're listening to that show, yeah, or or, or looking at that content that hey, this has uh, the ability to to uh, usher us into a more carbon neutral type of situation, or certainly a more energy efficient yeah. transportation, transportation efficiency uh, is a big big deal. time story. Well, and the other thing about I liked about the AIWA meeting uh, was that collaboration and the and the coastal issues are fundamentally scientific, economic, and policy. And a little bit like the main fishery issue, here we are on a waterway on the eastern seaboard where the issues have to deal with the environmental impacts of the waterway management. It has to do with the economy of the eastern shipping industry, which is changing because of the Panama Canal widening and Panamax ships and deeper ports and all of that stuff. And the policy issues that go with the federal investment and and the organization's participation on Capitol Hill and what they're about. I think it's another example of how on the coast economics culture environmental issues advocacy policy are all in, uh, on top of each other and integrated into these segments of the american shoreline and i think as what i love about coastal news today and aspn is we try to like lift the lid on that stuff and look inside these complicated issues and and look at the people involved and what they're working on and uh, try to reveal that a little bit that's right so, you know, I went, I, we're talking about our mountain of content. Yeah, mountain of content. Uh, so we've, I think we've completed our, our first little trail. This is, you know, this is kind of a little easy trail here mm -hmm. where we got to uh, look out at some nice vistas, see some of the interesting formations, uh, <laughs> interesting geology on the mountain of ASPN content. Uh, but now we want to, and, and what we've done is we've talked about our coverage. Yeah. Uh, we've, yeah. We've, yeah. We have the ASPN treatment all the different perspectives, de-siloing, and we've got our live event coverage kind of going out, seeking out the stories. But we, have, we could not do this just ourselves. We need other voices. We need other perspectives yeah. on this network. Yeah. And we are blessed to have amazing contributors, show hosts who uh, have, are creating their own content, providing their own perspectives, and reaching out to their own communities for interviews and to find stories. We simply could not do this by ourselves. And we have a great uh, list of hosts that I just need to acknowledge, beginning, Peter, with Jenna Valente of the Sea Change podcast. Yeah, and uh, it, it's true, Tyler. Uh, the This is a network. The American Shoreline Podcast Network is a collection of voices that's part of that conversation. But Jenna Valente from Boston, Massachusetts, and the uh, Sea Change podcast. I have just, I've fallen in love with the show. I have to admit I was a skeptic when it started. I really wasn't sure, like, it, it, but she talks about coastal advocacy and the community of people who work to protect and enhance the coast. It's the environmental perspective and the people involved. It's turned into a show that I think is really fascinating about the profession how people, education, it's a perspective of women in this particular realm. 
and it's always educational. I always get a ton out of it, and I'm always surprised at how much I learn from her show. So Jenna Valente, hats off to you, tip of the hat. I mean, you thank you for doing all the great shows you did this year. Great perspective. Uh, I echo all of that. I want to especially highlight the uh, powerful female perspective of young uh, conservation uh, advocates who are out there try, m- making a difference, uh, doing, the, doing the hard work. And Jenna is, Jenna's show really illuminates how that all works, how people can become involved, whether as just, whether as volunteers or whether as uh, full-fledged, you know, this is a career option, but great work. Also, Derek Brockbank, yeah. executive director of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, a key partner of ours, as we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. but also a great storyteller and host of the Capital Beach podcast, right. uh, one of two podcasts on ASPN that cover the goings-on inside the Beltway. Right, the DC podcast, uh, Derek show, Capital Beach you know, Derek is a real professional up there, very involved, has testified before Congress um, on behalf of coastal issues. So he knows the ropes. He's had incredible guests on, uh, senators, major industry people in the court at NOAA. Uh, so if you and, and it's important because what happens on the American shoreline is driven to a great extent by what happens in Washington, D.C., it's where the money and the policies set the stage for coastal communities all over America. What are we spending money on? What are the regulatory requirements? What is the economic incentives? All of that packaging of all of those issues originates in D.C. And Derek is our insider on Capitol Hill and super good and is done. You know, he's putting together his best of Capitol Beach podcast show, which will be uh, released here soon. And I'm really looking forward to his uh, choice of best guests on his show this year. Well, he's had an awesome year, uh, and just, and he's going to have an awesome 2020, we should say. He's, he's already got his, uh, first show of 2020, uh, on the, on the back burner and, Mm -hmm. uh, it will be ready early in 2019 or 2020, excuse me, 2020. But, um, Derek is just another example of a, a person who offers their perspective to our audience and is just very important voice uh, Dan Martin. Well, but before I move on to Dan Martin, let's talk about Dan Janolfi and Howard Marlowe, also in D.C., the Waterlog podcast. Right. Also incredibly in, uh, insightful. Yeah. Dan and Dan and Howard do a show once a month and it's released on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And it's a federal appropriations show more than anything else. What they're tracking is federal spending, particularly in the Corps of Engineers budget and how that relates to and benefits uh coastal communities around America. So this is a, this is the DC money show. And I think these, you know, Howard has been doing this since the 1980s and uh, he knows a boatload about where what's where th- going through committee, who's voting <laughs> on it, what right. the gossip is, what, right. what might happen, what, you know, yeah. this is, this is deep into the swamp. It is. <laughs> yes, they would say. The wetland. We'll it call is, it a we'll coastal wetland. It, the coastal wetland. Yeah, it's a deep dive into the D.C., the internal of uh, D.C. power and money when it comes to coastal America. So great show from Dan and uh, Dan. 
Janolfi. Janolfi and right. Howard Marlowe. Now let's talk quickly, Peter. Uh, let's leave the Beltway yeah. and talk about our, our good friend up in Chicago on the Great Lakes shoreline, an important right. shoreline on the American shoreline. Yep. Uh, Dan Martin and the Next Gen Waterfronts podcast. Yeah, Nick. Dan, thank you very much for being on ASPN this year, and we're looking forward to more. Dan is a deep-thinking guy, and, and his... The scope of his show, what I love about it, is really has to do with land use and the use and investment in real estate and the economics of the shoreline. Uh, he's had some incredible guests on this year. He's very, very thoughtful. Uh, and I just wanted to give a big shout out to Dan. It's good to have a Great Lakes guy. He reminds us all the time about, hey, don't overlook the Great Lakes shoreline. There's a lot happening in the Great Lakes. It's absolutely true. Uh, my favorite show of his this year, Mary Lungen, the Senior Managing Director at Heitman Properties. Uh, Mary manages $44 billion portfolio of coastal uh, property investment or real estate investment around the world. And uh, let me tell you, it's an interesting discussion to talk to people who have that large of a stake in the risks of shoreline property. And it's a super good show, and it's an example of the very high caliber discussions that Dan Martin brings to ASPN. So thanks, Dan. It is a great show. Can't recommend it more highly. And if you were to take the Mississippi down from the Midwest down to the uh, Louisiana shoreline, we've got our great down to the Delta. Right. We've got Delta Dispatches hosted by Jockey Bear and Simone Malaz. Uh, another great media partnership with these folks. They produce this show independently as part of the uh, Restore the Mississippi Delta Coalition. Yeah. Uh, it's actually a live radio broadcast. Right, in New Orleans. In New Orleans. And Is it K-A-Z-I? I I, that... No, I don't believe so. But no, it's... It's, it's a great show. And uh, we, from the, from the earliest days on ASPN, we knew that we needed to have some dedicated coverage to Louisiana because there's so, the issues there are, it's yeah. like the crucible. It's where it is really all happening. There's money being spent. Um, there's a lot of sand being pumped. A lot of lot, land is being lost. Uh, there, there's a huge complex, you know, you've got the big river coming out. We had major flooding in 2019. 2019 yeah. will go down in history. Yeah. Uh, as being a major high water year uh, in the Mississippi yeah. basin. Uh, and so we are thrilled to have this show, Delta Dispatches, on. It's usually about weekly. Uh, mm -hmm. And just it, it, they profile people who are working on the Louisiana shoreline. Right. I think it's such an important show. Uh, and for the reasons that you stated, uh, the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority in Louisiana has a it, one of the best planning processes going on for shore, for coastal and shoreline management issues. They have $50 billion worth of money available through these programs and plans. It's a very complex uh, stack of money and programs. But if you're looking for a state that has been the most threatened uh, and, and therefore the most responsive to coastal issues, and this is both the economics and the environmental health, the fisheries health, the management of a major river, uh, Louisiana is the place to look, and it gives you a peek into the future. I think a lot of states are going to go down paths that are similar to uh, what Louisiana is doing when the heat gets high enough. Uh, as shoreline change occurs and sea levels rise around the country, they're setting the stage. So I like this show, and it's 
it's you know it's cryptic down there in the bayou. I've no <laughs> just pronouncing the names of the places and knowing the players and Plaquemines Parish and what's going on and and the the diversion of the Mississippi River uh, into for wetlands rest. It's just the complexity of the issues there is is massive, and it's great to have some folks on the front lines on ASPN, and that's Jacques and uh, Simone. So great show, and thanks you guys for for bringing your talent and perspective to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Well, and we similarly, speaking of regions that just are absolutely iconic on the American shoreline, uh, the Pacific Northwest, we also knew we needed to have mm-hmm. uh, some representation up there. And fortunately, we were able to get plugged in with your old law school buddy, yeah, uh, Thane. Thane Tinson. Tinson and his... Uh, colleague and buddy Brad Warren, they yeah. co-host the show Changing Waters. Yeah. And this is just, it's one of my favorite shows on the network. Um, it, they cover fisheries and ocean science and ocean conservation principally. It's yeah. it's it's definitely more marine yeah. than coastal. Yeah. But up there in the Pacific Northwest, given the importance of fisheries and uh, the the salmon runs and the rivers that have been dammed and this broader discussion of, of yeah. environmentalism up in Pacific Northwest, which might be the greenest corner of the yeah, country. I think so. Uh, we needed to tell the story. We do. And there's, like you said, there's the issues there are unique and different. Uh, but I liked, you know, for example, the show that uh, Thane did recently on canoe culture, on the indigenous history, the history of the indigenous uh, communities along the Pacific Northwest shoreline, uh, the construction and, and of ocean-going canoes and the resurrection of that community. He had on a tribal chieftain who still speaks Chinook and uh, is, a, you know, it, really amazing. And then you add to that the NOAA show on on the southern uh, uh, orca population in Puget Sound. That's the at resident. high risk. The resident, yeah, the resident uh, orcas in Puget Sound. And so it's a really great show from that region of the country. It does have a lot to do with fisheries and salmon. They go all the way up to Alaska. These guys have worked all along that region, are very deeply connected into the coastal community. And uh, I love their show, too. It's really fantastic. Uh, We should give a shout-out to uh, Rob Nixon, host of the Next Swell podcast. Rob had contributed a couple shows this year, and they were really good. They were great, and uh, I'm hoping Rob will do more shows. He's a pretty busy guy, and uh, he's got kids who get this. He's down in South Padre Island. What I love about Rob is uh, his kids are both hockey players in the in the Hockey Association and the Hockey League in South Padre Island, Texas. I'm serious. It is really great. But Rob has done did some some really fabulous shows, and uh, when he gets time, and I'm hoping Rob uh, will jump back in. And uh, do a little bit more this year. Uh, but one of my favorites of the years was his interview with Jack E. Davis, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea, about the history of the Gulf of Mexico, an overlooked water body along the American shoreline. Uh, at least the folks on the Gulf feel that way. Uh, but a really interesting and in-depth interview with him. And uh, Rob has always got his eye on important issues, and I really uh, hope he does more next year. Absolutely. And I, I would say the same thing. Uh, our good friend, host of the Ship to Shore podcast, Bob Frump, yeah. uh, who uh, this this is a show about the maritime industry mm-hmm. and about uh, 
the trends in shipbuilding and in shipping and, and kind of peeling back the veil uh, so that we can see what goes on behind the big walls at, at the ports of entry. And yeah. it's a fascinating industry, yeah. uh, a fascinating lifestyle for people who are, are at sea, part of this massive uh, commercial fleet that we have. Uh, and he's done some great shows uh, yeah. about, uh, you know, the Coast Guard and, yeah. and with writers as well. He did a great show with uh, Coast Guard rescue divers and the origin of the rescue community uh, in the U.S. Coast Guard. And uh, another, uh, you know, Bob is uh, was a longtime journalist with uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer and other newspapers, uh, syndicated columnist. He's also an author of several books on the American shipping industry. But one of my favorite shows of his this year was his interview with another Pulitzer Prize winning author, Gilbert Gall, who wrote The Geography of Risk. That book came out in September. It's an important book about the risks that we are taking along the American shoreline as a result of federal federal policy primarily and our insurance, how we do FEMA flood insurance and the other programs that the federal government sponsors and what impact what the implications of those programs are for shoreline communities around America. You know, Bob is a a serious journalist, incredibly experienced, and that's the kind of show that he can put together. So Bob Frump, thanks a lot for being uh, hosting the ship to shore podcast on the American shoreline podcast network. And, uh, I think we're, 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 I I can't say that we have favorites here, but, uh, a very special, uh, moment to recognize Leslie Ewing, absolutely, uh, who hosts the Shorewords podcast, which is a coastal literature <clears throat> uh, yeah. podcast. Yeah, uh, Leslie, in addition to being um, a totally supportive uh, and encouraging for us to do this this whole year, has contributed some great material to the ASPN Mountain. She has. Uh- the, she, her focus is on on the authors of of books about the coast, uh, fiction and nonfiction. Uh, Leslie is currently, you know, a a works with the California Coastal Commission, and uh, uh, she can't talk about California coastal policy because she's involved in that professionally. But this you right. know, gives her a chance to really dive deep into some great issues and. Uh, and I think the literature focus is fantastic, and I'm looking forward to her doing more of that next year. So in addition, we've got this great uh, group, cabinet, I guess you could say, of hosts and voices that uh, contribute to ASPN. Mm-hmm. And again, just thank you to all of our hosts. Um, but we rely on special guests to come in and tell us what they know, share their perspectives with us. We, all of our hosts, yeah. uh, including us, rely on that very much. So we wanted to quickly uh, just go through some of the notable guests of 2019. We've had some incredible people on the yeah, network. Yeah, 219 shows in 2019. A comp, you know, as you said, the product of a lot of different perspectives and voices, the geographic range of our shows from... Boston, all the way around the American shoreline to Seattle. Uh, and they have really reached out and, and, and brought to the American shoreline podcast network, some killer guests. And I want to just list a couple that I thought were very notable guests. And that is on Delta dispatches. Jacques and Simone had the, for their 100th show, 
the governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards. Uh, they interviewed him at his office at the governor's mansion. Really a super great show. Very cool. Yep. Um, the Changing Waters podcast. This was uh, this is uh, Brad Warren and uh, Thane Tinson show. Uh, they had on the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, who was on the ESPN network. I was uh, I was stunned that we had the former president of Ireland. But Mary Robinson is key in the international discussion of the response to climate change. She's internationally uh, critical and 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 well known, and brought a really interesting perspective on coastal issues from from Ireland. And then there's Jack Davis, as we mentioned earlier, the author of the Gulf Making of an American Sea Pulitzer Prize winner was on the Next Well podcast. Great interview. Very great interview. And I, one that we did, uh, uh, Tyler, we had Ken Graham, the director of the National Hurricane Center, on the American Shoreline podcast twice. That's right. Uh, at the beginning of the hurricane season, yep. it was a wrap-up. Once in 2018, once in 2019. Yeah. And uh, a really interesting discussion with him. Gilbert Gall, of course, another Pulitzer Prize winning author. I loved our interview with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, which we recorded at uh, EarthX in, right, in Dallas, Texas. Great interview. Honored to speak with Senator Whitehouse. Uh, very much. Uh, we mentioned Mary Lundgren, the senior managing director at Heitman. That was on Dan Martin's uh, Next Gen Waterfront show, a highlight of the year. And then Danny Washington. Danny Washington, emergent uh, coastal conservation celebrity, I would say influencer, social media influencer. Uh, and she was on the Sea Change podcast with Jenna Valente yeah. early in the year, uh, close to 12 months ago. But man, great show. Danny is part of this next new generation of, of energized advocates. And uh, with Greta's uh, winning of person of the year, uh, I think we can see that there is absolutely a growing movement of young people yeah. who are wanting to get involved and are communicating with social media. And uh, Danny is a part of all of that. So it was very cool to have her on. Yeah. Um, she's, ladies and gentlemen, if you're not familiar with her, it's probably because you're not a young uh, social media consumer. But <laughs> if you are, she's she's a big she's a big time um, yeah. figurehead and basically celebrity in the yeah but and, and she comes from a, she comes from a coastal sciences background she comes from an education she's done TV and radio and 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 a series on cable I mean she's a spokesperson for coastal conservation issues and she's technically really solid and smart and uh, like a lot of the guests that we have they're true pros. No doubt about it. A couple of other ones I, w I have to mention. Dr. Susan Havorka from the University of Texas Bureau of Economic Geology, the series that we did on carbon sequestration starting in February in 2019. Go back and listen to this show, you guys. This is about the next horizon in, in, uh, in climate change response, which is to pull carbon out of the air and get rid of it somehow. Dr. Havorka, who's a an incredible geologist and working at the University of Texas, multi-million dollar international research effort on how to pull CO2 out of the air and put it into deep carbon, deep geologic sequestration. Uh, they're, they're, they're doing millions of pounds of carbon out of the air right now. There's a whole new federal tax credit program. Anyway, Susan Havorka, the UTBEG series on carbon sequestration was a super, I think, interview sequence that I loved. And then one of my favorites was Shanice Stopnitsky from the Community oh, Submersibles Project. Come on, that Superb. was good. 
Yeah, so uh, Shani runs a community organization that uh, re- builds, rehabilitates, makes seaworthy submersibles, and then trains people yeah. how to on how to pilot them. Right. And uh, she's based in the Bay Area of California, the San Francisco Bay Area. And my Lord, was that fun. Uh, I think that I think everyone out there will acknowledge somewhere deep down that the (laughs) it's just a childhood dream to be operating a cool submarine with a window, you know, and she does this. She was great. They. The whole story about how she she quit her PhD program. This is another, you know, incredibly serious scientist who uh, dropped out of her PhD to pursue this community submersibles program and to, as you say, own and operate and train people on submersibles. And there's a really specific objective here. She believes that if people see and understand the ocean realm in a better way, they will become the strong advocates that are necessary to respond to the challenges that are happening along the American shoreline. I don't think she's wrong about it. Not at all. I'm hoping we get to get on one of the subs and we get out there to We're IOFF. Gonna, We're going to try. We've talked to her about trying to get our pilot's license for submarines. <laughs> we We're going to try. <laughs> 2020. But, uh, that, 2020 that, holds some uh, interesting possibilities for us. We're going to get in that, into that in a second. Yeah. Uh, but t- t- absolutely an amazing... Uh, show. Now, Peter, we, uh, we've gone a little long, but I think we just yeah. have to take a little bit more time to go over uh, some of the, some of the themes of 2019 in the last decade and look, look ahead to 2020. Here we are, we're rounding out. This is a significant year. Yeah. And um, we've been afforded kind of a cool position to see what's going on. And I, we'd be remiss if we didn't Talk about some of the patterns we're seeing. A little retrospective. I mean, one of the advantages of doing what we're doing, which is to cull through a massive body of news every day and to to curate a collection of information for our readers on Coastal News Today and to talk to coastal professionals all around the world, actually, about what's happening on shorelines around the world, is you begin to see some patterns and some things. And uh, we were talking about this, like what is really going on on the on the shoreline in the last decade? What has really been some of the major themes? And I think there's a couple that are clear. And and this goes back to Tyler before we were doing Coastal News Today and just going to conferences like ASBPA over the last five years. But it's the emergence of what's changing in coastal engineering, and and it is what I call the gray to green transition from hard surface, hard engineering on the American shoreline to a more green living shoreline uh, perspective that is now becoming more integrated into federal spending and federal planning and and local governments. Look, it doesn't mean we're not building barriers and seawalls anymore because we are. But what you'll find now is that the Corps of Engineers is integrating in major funding for natural uh, systems of shoreline response, whether it's oyster reefs and marshes. You see this all along the American shoreline. But this is a big trend. Uh, we're starting to think about working with nature. Well, I think we're, I think we're go- even gone beyond that. Uh, across the board, what we're doing is the pendulum is has, we're looking at, natural systems and the way it would be naturally and we're saying but we have a city over here we need to protect it and so we're saying can we build some sort of natural system that that emulates 
mimics the way nature would do it. Right. Now, there's usually still a wall buried in the sand. <laughs> yeah, there can uh, be. There's, yeah. you know, but the idea is, you know, you go back to our show, talking about retrospective here, we did our, our, our e-concrete show, uh, that we can do it better. There, there's got to be a way where we can make it more environmentally uh, suitable, cre- save habitat, save recreation space, maybe even create more recreation space, view these spaces through a slightly different lens. Yeah. And I definitely think that this has changed over the past decade. It's, of course, been going long before that. People have been talking about this. But stuff. it's gained a momentum. It's become mainstream. It is, and I think that you know it's easy to see it if you look at, say, in the in the the coastal protection project in in Galveston Bay for the city of Houston and the petrochemical industry. They're proposing an armored gate entry to a flood control gate system at 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 the, on the Galveston Ship Channel and the entrance to Galveston Bay. That's a big deal. It's billions of dollars. In addition. There's hundreds of millions of dollars in marsh restoration and oyster restoration built into that project. Not necessarily it's for the environmental benefit, of course, but as a part of the shoreline protection strategy. You see it in the Gulf of Mexico with the diversion of segments of the of the river into a, to re-sedimentize the, the Mississippi River Delta. You see it in massive restoration of the barrier island system off of Louisiana and the and the restoration of marshes. These are green shoreline strategies for coastal protection, and you see it up in Manhattan, the $10 billion proposal from the Corps of Engineers there, which includes a gate across the Hudson River. And but you, you see but it, it also includes a ton of oysters. We saw it in thin layer placement of dredge material along the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway. Right, the Seven Mile Island Project the in New Jersey. The Seven Mile Island Project. So we, we, this is definitely... Uh, caught on. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's notable in the, as we move into 2020, that we are moving into the new decade, uh, having crossed whatever Rubicon that yeah. is. Yeah. And uh, we are now looking to natural based solutions, I would say, or yeah. certainly nature based design uh, is this is this is a term, you know, resiliency yeah. might have been the term of uh I don't know the possibly the term of the last decade. Yeah, on coastal it, issues, I think resiliency is the buzzword of the last you know five years. It's yeah. become the predominant thematic uh, organizing principle of coastal response as we, we're on, we're doing a resiliency project and mm-hmm. we're thinking. And uh, the other big thing that we've watched emerge, going back to ASBPA and seeing you know sort of what. Uh, conference uh, topics are emphasized is really the notion of retreat being an acceptable discussion now. Uh, And the cool conversations we've had with Dr. Rob Young from the Center for Developed Shorelines uh, at Western Carolina University, and he's a big proponent of why aren't we thinking about retreat in certain areas, and I think Rob is making progress. We're seeing that now. And we also recall uh, Bradley... Uh, I'm going to blank on his name, but from Columbia University, Horton, Bradley Horton. Oh, yeah. uh, Columbia University, who uh, was a co-organizer of the uh, If Not Now When Managed Retreat Conference. At Columbia University. At Columbia. Now, Mm -hmm. this uh, year. This clearly, the notion of retreat has moved from being a third rail notion that serious 
po- the- thought leaders on on coastal issues were just not interested in because it wasn't considered to be productive. And right. now it's being seriously considered. It's it's definitely not uh, looked to as the end all be all solution. But no. but what uh, Rob Young would say is that it's a tool in the toolkit. In fact, at yeah. the, at his panel at ASBPA. Uh, he was asked by Derek Brockbank, who moderated that panel, what would you like to see in the next 10 years of mm-hmm. coastal management? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, I want, I would like to see retreat taken seriously as a, an alternative, as a technique to yeah. manage shorelines. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, happy news for you, uh, Rob. I think you're, I think you're going to see your wish because it's happening. Yeah. It's happening. We covered the, the the Ventura project at Surfers Point in Ventura, where you have a managed retreat project in the works, and it's where it where they are doing it. It is working really well. Yeah. Um, and it's absolutely. I think that we are seriously thinking about. Uh, and it's it's because I mean, Peter. I don't know if this is on your list, but it's on my list. Uh, is Climate change is the other big thing, I think, from the past decade. Uh, I know this is a broad topic, but uh, we are now looking at these issues, not just from sediment rates in, sediment rates out, or even sea level might be creeping up. We're talking about this planet that we're on is undergoing some pretty serious changes and it's the predictability of them the variability in coastal environments the risk the move the risk the movement of wildlife the things are changing quite quickly and i think that changes the way we think about managing the space it does and i it it is the overarching theme or, or i would say the under let's say the underpinning at this point it's emerging as a more specific uh, approach to understanding what's happening on the shoreline, and it's becoming more and more acceptable to do that. Uh, EarthX is an example of that. The retreat conference at Columbia University, even ASBPA, ASBPA is starting to talk about it. And look, this isn't about theory, and I don't want to argue science and all of that stuff. But when it comes, if I, when I, what I like to say is, if you want to understand climate change, look in the water. Don't look in the atmosphere. Look at the movement of animal species, the migration of fish stocks all around the world. If you want, the fish aren't reading any studies. They're not succumbing to any hoax. The conditions are changing. It's changing the economy of the shoreline. If you want to understand climate change, look at property valuation and investors. This is why the, the, the uh, Dan Martin uh, interview with the property manager at Heitman, when you're seeing... Mary Lugden. Mary Lugden. When you see the major financial players, both in terms of insurance and real estate investment, and start to shift their assets, it's because they're seeing a change of conditions, and it ain't about arguing what's going on in the molecules in the atmosphere. This is about real stuff. And we're seeing the decline in property values in Charleston, South Carolina, a huge study that came out this year. We're looking at the change of land values in Miami and Little Haiti. This is the gentrification of higher elevation properties in coastal communities around the country. This change is happening. And if you want to know, the folks who understand it are the people who have assets at risk. They're not fooling around. They're not, they're not convinced. It's not ideology. It's they've got billions of dollars at stake. 
they're moving things around to respond to the change. The other thing is that the stuff we came across at EarthX, which are the investors who are seeing the major programmatic changes that are going to start happening on the American shoreline, placing bets in different industries to account for the fact that climate change is a real deal. That's another way to... Uh, yeah. So they're, they're taking the futures market on adaptivity and investing in the, the new technologies. Yeah, venture takes. capitals. And that they're going to make money on it. They're going to get they rich. Will, they will make money on it. They're going to get rich. So this has been, yeah. there's no doubt that climate change, we don't, on ASPN and Coastal News Today, we don't seek out climate change as like, we don't have an agenda for climate change or anything. Our agenda is just to talk about what the discussion. Our, we have an agenda, and it's just to shine a mirror up to the American shoreline and as honestly as we can what do we see? present the perspectives and, and, sh- and share what we see and, and share the conversations that are happening. Right. The conversations that are happening have shifted over the past year even, let alone the past 10 years, but certainly in the past year, uh, climate change has become a much more... Uh, common thing to discuss. Uh, it's the extreme weather events that have happened. Uh, I, I'm sure our audience will recall the uh, year of fires out in California. Yeah, my hometown was surrounded by flames. I mean, these these events, the hurricanes that have happened. Around, I could go on and on. Yeah, these unusual events, extreme weather events, have contributed to. Uh, climate change being more accepted. But the, my point is, is that this is important. It, ref- it reflects the way that people are thinking about the environment that they live in. Yeah. And in the, the coastal environment, because it is so dynamic, it's cranked up to 11. It's just, it's louder. Yeah. And uh, we are doing our best to show that. What's also cool is that um, it's not just panic <laughs> and no. fear which is, I think, happening maybe more broadly in the pop scene and, you know, the mainstream media or whatever. Right. But what we're seeing is uh, activism, innovation, technological innovation, yeah. innova- investment innovation, as you serious, just pointed out. Yes, yeah, serious thinking, serious uh, investment in, in resources and intellectual horsepower to get a handle on this quietly behind the scenes. Uh, it's all over the place, and I think... Uh, yeah, it's it's a great uh, it, well, it's an unavoidable frame over the next ten years. Is it will continue to be a dominant, I think, under underpinning of coastal policy and coastal investment. And this is where Rob Young is prescient in in his discussion. He has been saying, "Listen, I don't know if we can protect everything along the American shoreline. Some communities are going to have to be let go." Uh, because we don't have the economic justification or the economic horsepower. And I'm very interested to see uh, how states and the federal government decides who the winners and the losers are when it comes to the uh, adaptation, coastal resiliency, coastal protection ball game that's about to you know, go up another notch. It's already a big deal, but it's going to continue to rise. So you know, what are we going to see on NC-12, the highway out on the Outer Banks of North Carolina that's been washed out seven times? How many more times are we going to spend money there? Do we see a difference in investments in barrier island communities that are relatively low density, like on Hutchinson Island in Florida? And we were talking to Martin County's commissioner about this. 
uh, versus what we're going to see in Manhattan with the $10 billion proposal or the, or the petrochemical facilities in Galveston Bay and Harris County in the city of Houston where there's a $32 billion proposal. We're going to see some spending there. How is it going to be spread around? What communities are we going to save? Why are we going to decide? How are we going to decide who gets recovery and who doesn't? So that to me is like one of the driving forces on, that'll be on the American shoreline in the next decade. Definitely. And uh, I think I think that uh, just moving through here, because this was obviously a big theme in the last decade and, and even in 2019 uh, and in, certainly in 2018, we had some extremely damaging storms. Uh, the cost of recovery yeah. seems to go up and up and up and up. Um, there's a whole industrial complex that follows hurricane season around. Yeah. yeah. Um, now in California, we've got the fire season happening, um, which I understand is not explicitly coastal, but it it's yet another situation where you have an extreme uh, event yeah. that is extremely expensive to combat and manage. And we're seeing, I think that we're going to see definitely some new methods of managing this stuff. And I think you're right, winners and losers will be picked. The other thing that I'm seeing a lot of, Peter, looking forward into the next decade is aquaculture and deep sea mining. We've kind of pinned both of these, but uh, as the global, the, the population, ladies and gentlemen, across the planet is going up and the ocean is relied upon extensively for uh, protein, for food, um, and we are seeing, uh, our, as we've reported all over the world, fisheries are changing, they're moving, it's, they're harder to manage. We don't have a global government that can handle this kind of thing. And aquaculture seems to be on the rise. If, if I was to look at a trend in 2019 that I've seen, yeah. I've seen that a lot, there's a lot of investment, there's new technologies, automation will impact this. You can imagine robots tending to <laughs> uh, big pins in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, for example. These are things that are being investigated now. China is investing in such a system. And uh, the, the consequences, both in terms of food supply for these bigger fish that they're yeah. farming. And also on the flip side, this, this can be an incredibly beneficial thing for the environment. This yeah. can be, uh, uh, you know, mussels and shellfish that filter the water. Right. And we've seen that. We just ran a story out of New York, uh, that is looking at aquaculture in the future of, uh, New York cities as a water quality, as a water, as a way to mitigate and improve the, yeah. the bay there. So I, I'm looking toward the next decade, certainly into the next period of time. And I think that aquaculture will be expanding dramatically. In fact, I think we're going to be getting much more of our seafood uh, through yeah. farmed sources. Well, and then huge consequences, like you say, that it, the argument is, the expansion in aquaculture takes pressure off of wild stocks, and that's going to help fishery health. Maybe, possibly, that could be true. The potential downside issues on aquaculture, I would say, to me, the biggest one that I've been reading about, we've covered it on Coastal News today. What do you feed these predatory fish that we're going to grow, whether it's salmon or other species of fin fish that we're going to uh, 
develop through aquaculture, shrimp, other things. What do you feed them? What's happening right now is there's a they're collecting and 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 harvesting uh, feedstock fish, forage fish like herring and anchovies and all kinds of smaller fish, menhaden. Big uh, schools of fish are being caught, ground up, and processed into pellets to feed the aquaculture industry. And I think this is going to be one of the major uh, concerns about the expansion of aquaculture is what are you feeding, what are you going to feed them, and what is the, there's only so much food in the sea, so if we, and we are damn good at catching things, the technology available in the fishing industry from satellites, all the kind of sonar, you can find any kind, you can almost find any fish in the sea now and catch it if you want, if you've got enough money to do it. Um, and I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the loss of these forage fish which support all of these other natural stocks, uh, there's arguments right now that some of the whale deaths on the West Coast are a function of the loss of access to food. That they're food supply that Big they're time. starving, and this well, is and also that, concern with birds up in the uh, up in Alaska that they're also starving because we're catching right. a hell of a lot of these little fish that they need. That's right. And anyway, this we're seeing news stories. I mean, I've there are a, there's a lot of news being generated from around the world about. Investment coming into aquaculture, the concerns that you just raised about how to regulate and manage not only the food supply, but also the the water quality around these right. pins that uh, is just, it's an unnatural way to, it's an unnatural high concentration of these fish. That's an issue. And then on the other side, we're seeing opportunities to explore new foods for People like, for example, seaweed farming in California is a growing trend. It's largely considered a benefit to yeah. be farming these seaweeds, um, yeah. as well as uh, you know mussels and things like this. That yeah. that are the the notion is that it's hey look this is beneficial stuff. Yeah. Um, and if we can, what's importantly, I think what's happening is it's not just when we're talking about humans and what we're eating, it's that our relationship to seafood is changing as well, mm. that we maybe we're going to move into, hey, do, do we value wild caught products? Do we want to see that on our plate when it comes to salmon and, yeah. and fin fish? But when it comes to uh, mussels and oysters farmed is a-okay with me right how does the consumer change here right. and finally uh, i'm just going to put a button on this with technology aquaculture is a technology um across the board in fishing technology has the a potential to really make this industry regardless of what it is whether it's ropeless fishing technologies in the lobster fishery or whether it's putting uh, cameras on boats so that we can enforce our fisheries laws more efficiently right. and using the internet and iPads so that fishermen can enter in their catch and we can have... Yeah, we did the show on that. We topic. did a sh we, we have. This is, I think, a, a new... In the next decade, there's going to be investment. There will be public subsidies because without moving in this, this direction... I think that these wild fisheries are in for a real rough ride. And I do think that we value them. I think that we value yeah. the, the ocean as an environment broadly and man, man's fishing, man's take yeah. on the ocean, especially as population increases, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. 
uh, we need to manage this space better. It's difficult. You're talking about international waters. You're talking about yeah. interest. You know, the, the legal jurisdiction over the ocean is murky at best. Um, but I, I foresee a lot of work being done here, a lot of movement being done on uh, trying to figure out how to find a, a, a sustainable dynamic with our seafood. Right. And, you know, when, as I think you're right that the investments in aquaculture, are, you can expect to see them increase. Offshore leases for aquaculture areas are going to be uh, increasing. The question, I think, in terms of the environmental impact is the notion that you've raised about what is it that you're growing? If you're growing things that are the primary producer level, trophic levels biologically, uh, if you're talking about algae and, and seaweed production, perfectly fine. When you get into shellfish and the suspension of, and the development of aquaculture for shellfish, which feed off of the plankton in the water, in other words, they, they, they subsist very close to the bottom of the food chain, those species, that's all can be positively done. And it doesn't have uh, the implications that, that trying to, to artificially or through aquaculture produce finfish or predatory fish at the higher ends of the trophic levels that require a great deal of protein in order to, to produce biomass. I mean, when you're talking about tuna and you're talking about salmon and you're talking about animals that require a lot of feed, now we've got a different kind of aquaculture question in terms of water quality and waste. Uh, look, there's a long history of regulation and implications for confined animal feeding operations. This is all you guys out there in the Clean Water Act will know this, CAFOs, they're called. But this is about feedlots for pigs and chickens and, uh, and, and cattle. And these things have significant environmental implications because of the waste products and the feed sources that are utilized. And is that what we're going to see in the sea? I mean, obviously a little bit different, but... If this goes to scale, I do think that you're going to have the similar kinds of questions with, uh, that you do on land with CAFOs that you will in, in the production of, of, of predatory fish species for, for I mean, protein. just in the same way that we're having that discussion now with uh, animal protein that is raised yeah. in those uh, situations, we're going to be having the same. I'm, what, we're, what we will see in the next decade is this discussion extended to aquaculture? There's investment on all sides of this right. coming in, uh, and we can we can be sure that this will be going to keep a happening. major theme in the next ten years, and we look forward to covering it. Very similarly, Peter, uh, deep sea mining. You know, I'm yeah. we're, I'm kind of coupling this together, but yeah. again, we're talking about uh, international waters, the bottom of the ocean. Uh, we are yeah. we are a, a species that is quickly moving toward you know longer battery life on your iPhone, and yeah. we we need our lithium, our heavy metals. We and uh, if you think about and climate change is emerging as we've as we've discussed uh, these mines that are uh, on the surface, you know, that strip mining these mountains are criticized. Um, they're targets of yeah, uh, criticism because they're pretty dirty things, and there will be. We are seeing already that there's interest in mining the seafloor. Strategic minerals. So if we let, if you like your electric car and you like your cell phone, uh, it's relevant to this discussion. Uh, it is the 
exploitation of what are called polymetallic nodules. They're in crusts. There are different formations on the seafloor. Uh, they've been mapped. What's interesting to me, and I've, we sort of put some of this on Coastal News today, we haven't done a podcast, it, and I would love to give this the ASPN treatment, um, but the International Seabed Authority, the ISA, which is headquartered in Jamaica, is an international organization created by the Law of the Sea Conference, United Nations Law from the 70s, re-upped in the 80s and the 90s. But the international management of seabed it, it, mining is going to be a big deal in the next decade. There are leases all across the Pacific and pop, off of Papua New Guinea and down in, in, in Southeast Asia. There are huge expanses of seafloor that have already been demarked and identified to be under the control of particular lessees. And the, the, the folks who are leasing this land are sometimes are often government, public, private entities all over the world. So there's a, a great deal of the seafloor has been identified for exploitation. And we're starting to see the technology emerge, what it looks like to have a deep seabed mining tractor and we've posted some of those pictures on Coast News today, but the technology is starting to emerge. Uh, it hasn't hit a large scale yet, but I do think it's coming. The amount of money involved and the, uh, and the, and the metals that are available are, are pretty astonishing. If you, if you get interested, uh, look up polymetallic nodules and take a look on the Internet about what these guys are talking about and take a look at the International Seabed Authority uh, website and what they're trying to do. Uh, but in the next 10 years, yeah, I think we're going Definitely down. a theme. I mean, yeah. And, and listen to the show with Shep, Shep Smith of the NOAA's rear admiral who uh, runs the fleet that is doing a lot of the, the mapping. Uh, in fact, they're going to be going out. We just ran a story recently. They're going to be mapping the Marianas Trench. Yeah. Uh, NOAA will be. Um, so, uh, there's there's definitely a research component here, a science and exploration component. Uh, we don't know a lot about the seabed and the seafloor. The science that is emerging is telling me, this is my understanding of it, Peter, but uh, that the seabed is really important for the health of the ocean and the planet broadly. It's it's uh, where the saltiness of the water, I believe, comes from, the, the, the exchange yeah. between uh, the... Earth's crust and yeah, the oceans is it's a, an important. It's a, it's a biologically and geologically active space. I mean, the abyssal plain. It's just a very complicated space. But and we're learning more about it, so we we're going to be following this now. But do you have any other things for the next decade? I do have one more, but if this is the broad thing we're kind of yeah. touching yeah, on go here. For it. Do we? This is my question. Do we have the institutional capacity? to manage complex multi-jurisdictional issues that are along the shoreline and in the seas. And it has to do with this blue water fishing regulation. Do we have the capacity to do that? Do we have the capacity to manage shoreline, shoreline issues that, that cross state line jurisdictions and local jurisdictions? Uh, given the challenges ahead on management of climate, management of energy and management of fisheries. And when I look at that slate of issues, the question I have is, do we have the institutional framework and capacity to operate effectively on issues of this complexity? And I have to tell you, right now, I'm a bit skeptical. It doesn't mean that can't evolve and emerge. I can tell you that I, in my view, um, 
we haven't quite figured out how to tackle problems like climate change or CO2 or international mining in the seafloor or even international fisheries. Uh, we don't have the institutional framework to do that. It's a little bit of a of a, it's the new it's the new global gold rush. It's what's happening starting to happen in the Arctic, where you've got multiple jurisdictions looking at the exploitation of the last untouched part of the planet. Really, uh, well, Antarctica as well, but really the Arctic Sea. Uh, so I, that's what I'm looking at and trying to see what happens in our institutional capacity to operate. I completely agree, and we definitely have the one thing that's for darn sure is we are not there yet maybe we will get there in the next 10 years yeah hopefully that's it will be interesting to see because things are heating up well peter i think you know we we've gone pretty long here we're we're at about an hour and a half of of show so uh before we wrap up uh our 2019 closeout show uh, we wanted to talk about some of the new shows that are coming your way in 2020. Yeah, so Tyler's been working uh, all year, really, on the slate of shows on ASPN. He's the director of content for the network. And looking at trying to expand the conversation we have on ASPN, and uh, I'm pretty jazzed about the shows that you're developing that we're going to bring new hosts, new topics, and new shows to ASPN next year. Give us a give us a, a hint. Well, uh, the first thing I want to say is uh, our our listeners are already familiar with uh, Brian Urisitz. He's been on Jenna's show. He was on a Friday happy hour a, f- a few weeks ago around Thanksgiving, and he in 2020 will be hosting a show uh, yet unnamed, but basically it's going to be a show about fish stories. He's going to be going out and speaking with fishermen and really ask, learning what they're experiencing as the climate changes, as their fisheries are shifting beneath their boat, he's going to go out to them and uh, interview them and and talk about these changes, get it in their own words. This is, I think, an extremely important perspective as the oceans and the shorelines around us change. And this will be out of the out of the Northeast. This is correct. He's out, he's based out of Boston. He's from Long Island. He's got deep old fishing roots there in New England. It's going to be a fantastic show. Our listeners will also know Carmela Guial. Uh, we introduced her to the uh, to y'all uh, last week on Friday Happy Hour, yeah. Yeah. and she's got a new show called Enchanted Island coming out in 2020. Uh, she's this is all about the island of Puerto Rico, a really interesting enclave of the American shoreline. Um, and Carmela is living in San Juan and is going to be going around that island exploring the coastal culture, the little coastal beaches, different places, different views, and sharing that with us. So I'm looking forward to that show. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm hoping that she, you know, over time it becomes a show about the Caribbean basin because I think the coastal issues in the Caribbean are gigantic. And uh, there's just so much to talk about down there in the U.S. Virgin Islands and all around the Caribbean. And uh, so I'm really so glad you found her and are bringing her to the network. That's going to be awesome. The That's Enchanted right. Island podcast. Uh, our listeners might also remember Andra Belknap, uh, who was on our Memorial Day special. Uh, and she's just, she's a, a real treat, a great storyteller, a great writer. Uh, and she'll be introducing a new show on ASPN called 
we yet again yet unnamed but uh we're calling it for now working title visit ventura this is in partnership with visit ventura the uh ventura uh tourism association the tourism board there and we have partnered with them to create this really cool uh three-part series about ventura's culture its coastal identity uh what it's what to do there, both as a tourist and and what the vibe is for residents. It's going to be a really cool show. A little bit of a departure. Mm-hmm. This will be our first narrative style podcast on ASPN, and uh, we're really hoping that it, this is not a one and done. That we will do this with do these with other communities around yeah. the American shoreline. Yeah, uh, thrilled to have Andra on this. She's uh, again a truly gifted storyteller. She's an actress. She's uh, been a local reporter. She's got a great sense of where the story is. And uh, we know she's going to do a great job. And finally, Peter, uh, we have Erica Sears, yeah. uh, who also our our guests will remember, or excuse me, her, her audience will remember when she was a guest in 2019. Uh, Erica uh, is headquartered in Oregon mm-hmm. and works for the Oregon Coastal Tourism Association. Right. And she's going to be bringing, for the first time, a show on ASPN that focuses on tourism and destination management, which is such an important uh, business, industry, and area on the American shoreline. We knew we needed to get someone to cover this. Erica kind of fell into our lap. We just kind of, by happenstance, met her, and she's absolutely perfect. Uh, Yeah, she's going to be great. She's going to be great. And so we're really excited. We have some other shows um, bubbling up as well. We're certainly not done. The complexities of what's happening on the American shoreline are infinite. I mean, yeah, we're trying to cover the conversation. And, <clears throat> you know, for the folks out there, like, well, a couple of tourism shows with Erica and Andra. Uh, and you think, well, that's kind of interesting. It, it, let me tell you, it is the heart and soul of the coastal economy in so many communities. And Tourism is for the engineers out there when you're in, in our days of financing coastal restoration projects, the tourism industry uh, drives economic value and tax revenue and public investment on the American shoreline. It's massive. It drives public policy down in Florida, the harmful algal bloom problem, the red tide and the blue algae that decimated Fish uh, the water quality and fish along the Florida coast also had a massive impact on on tourism, on hotel rentals, on f- on the fishing guide community, and on the tax bases of counties and cities along the Florida coast. So when we're thinking about coastal tourism, it's one of the major economic sectors on the American shoreline. And diving deep into it, understanding it is really important. So I think these these initiatives with Erica and with Andra and also uh, down in the Caribbean um, are all important uh, areas of the coast coast to understand. So I, I'm really glad to see us finally getting a handle on this economic sector uh, on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. It's really going to be good. We're thrilled to be able to bring another year of ASPN, another mountain uh, yeah. in 2020. <laughs> And hopefully uh, throughout this coming decade, you know, it's hard to think out that far. But one thing's for certain, um, we believe that it is critical 
that the broad coastal and ocean discussion continue to happen. And we think that it's only becoming more and more important, especially as events accelerate. Um, the, the science gets better. The expertise becomes more and more refined. We need to remember what the big picture is. We need to work from a position of collaboration across siloed realms. Um, mm -hmm. We are increasingly interconnected in the coastal space. And I think that ASPN aims to continue to, to try to connect the coastal community in 2020. Yep. Keep the conversation going. As I like to say, there's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot to talk about on the American shoreline and shorelines around the world. So Tyler, it's been a great year, 2019. I'm looking forward to 2020 and beyond. And to all of our listeners on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, thank you very much. The tens of thousands of you who do that. Um, and on Coastal News Today, also, uh, the readers out there, hey, subscribe, review and rate shows, email things, forward the emails to your friends. Let's build a bigger community. Let's build a bigger conversation on the American Shoreline. And uh, Happy New Year to everybody coming up in 2020. Have a great holiday season. And uh, we'll be back in... Uh, in 2020 with another 200 podcasts about the American Shoreline Conversation. Mm -hmm.